Well, uh, Joe Lyon came in today and he was floating. He was like a teenager. I mean, he was hopping. Like rat, bunny rabbit. And I wondered what in the world was going on. He ran up and said, I, I met President George Bush at the country club the other day. I went up and talked to him and said, you know, can't imagine you'd give up being a fighter pilot to be President of the United States or something like that. And uh, Bush looked at him and they really got along real well for a few seconds. The Secret Service came over and said, who is this crazy looking guy? <laughs> but anyway, to make a long story short, after it was all over, uh, uh, Joe said, you know, there's my wife over there. And uh, so when George Bush was leaving, he went over and talked to Jane, stopped by and talked to Jane. And she said something to him, and he gave her a kiss on her right cheek, and she said she has not washed her right cheek <laughs> since Wednesday night. Isn't that true? It's something like that. <laughs> I'm going to repent of a little bit of my story because it was a little bit of an exaggeration. Okay, well, we're starting a new series in the book of Colossians. So take your Bible and uh, turn to the book of Colossians. I had originally planned on doing Titus, Somebody wanted me to do Isaiah, but that's 66 chapters, and I thought, I just, after going through Matthew for two years, I thought that would be too much. So, uh, I decided to go with Colossians, the book that we have not taught in this class, at least I haven't. And it's one I wanted to revisit. I taught on this book 25 years ago. So what I want to do today is I want us to do a sweeping overview of the book, and I want to answer questions about the book, those what we call diagnostic questions, the question that every newspaper reporter must ask when they are researching for an article, the who, what, why, where, and when of the subject. And so that's what we're going to do, and uh, what you need to know is that this book consists it's one of the four prison epistles. You've heard of prison epistles. These were books that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, during his house arrest in Rome. And you can read all about his house arrest in Acts chapter 28. He is in Rome for two full years under house arrest, probably chained to a soldier. And in the Roman Empire, they just didn't throw you in jail. It's not like us, where we just throw people in jail, and then the government has to pay forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year to take care of them. If you were arrested and you were being held for trial, you had to rent your own house. And he rents his own house, and a soldier is assigned to him, and he's there for two years between the years sixty-one and sixty-two A.D. And during that time, he writes four letters. The letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Philippians, and the letter to uh, Philemon. Four letters. We believe that Colossians is the first letter that he writes. And Colossians and Ephesians have a chapter in them that look very similar, at least large sections. But we believe Colossians was written first. So this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through selective verses in order to give us a feel for the book. So let's answer the question, the who question, okay? 
Let's look at who writes the book. Look what it says in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now notice how Paul identifies himself. First of all, he identifies himself as an apostle, which simply means a messenger or a representative. Paul is writing on behalf of someone else. He says he's writing in that verse on behalf of Jesus Christ. Some of your translations reverse it and say on behalf of Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus being his personal name, Christ being his title, which means Messiah or anointed one. So God has anointed Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah and the king of the world, and Paul is being sent out by Jesus. And he represents Jesus. What he says is uh, the mind of Christ for the church here at Colossae. Then he adds this. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And look at this next phrase. By the will of God. In other words, Paul didn't choose this assignment of being an apostle. He didn't choose the office. Uh, he was drafted. This is known as the call. The call. You've heard of being called into the ministry? Well, just imagine, there's two ways you can go into the ministry. You can go into the ministry by choosing to be a minister. And there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people say, I want to be an accountant. I want to be, you know, a pilot. Some people say, I just want to serve people. I want to go into the ministry. And others sense that they have been called into the ministry. It's like it used to be in the United States military service. You were, could either join what branch of service uh, you wanted to go into. You, you were a volunteer. Or, remember the old days? You get drafted. And they told you where to serve. Paul, on the Damascus Road, has been captured and drafted by Christ and chosen to be Christ's spokesman to a whole group of people. So he is an ambassador or an apostle or a messenger on behalf of Messiah Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the universal king. It's all been by the will of God. Now, also we know that Paul is a prisoner at this time. So he's not only an ambassador of Christ, he's a prisoner of Christ. If you look over at chapter 4, now I told you this was a prison epistle and you just took my word for it, right? But we know from the text that this is the case. Notice in verse 10 of chapter 4, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. See that? So Paul is in prison at the time of writing this, but not the kind of prison we think of. And then, in the middle of verse 18 of chapter 4, he says, Remember my chains. So most likely Paul is chained to a soldier and he's confined to a limited space. Uh, I liken this to Al Lipscomb when he was under house arrest. Remember when that happened? Uh, he was uh, arrested. He was found guilty. He was put under house arrest. They put an anklet around his uh, leg and he could he was limited to uh, his house. And that's what Paul is when he writes this. Okay. Now go back to chapter 1. We see that Paul's not the only one involved in this process of writing. He has a secretary. Uh, he says, and Timothy, our brother. Paul, an apostle 
of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and notice who else is writing with Paul, Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy is Paul's secretary. This is a dictated letter. Paul's standing there dictating it, and Timothy has his pen out, and he's writing down what Paul said. In fact, that verse that we just looked at back in chapter 4, I'm going to just stay there for a second, but you can see what he says right there in 4.18. Look, he says this. The salutation, you see that 4.18? The salutation by my own hand, Paul. The only part of this letter that Paul actually writes with his own hand is the ending, which is called the salutation. Everything else has been written by Timothy. Paul's process in writing letters was always this. To dictate the letter to a secretary, and then at the end of the letter, sign it with his own hand. Just like an executive would do today, where he you know, dictates a letter to his secretary, and she types it out, and he puts his signature on it. So Timothy likely is visiting Paul in this rented home. Paul has a whole bunch of visitors in this rented home. You need to read Acts 28. It explains it all. So that's the who. Who wrote it. Now look to whom it is written. Look at the audience. We have the author. Now look at the audience. To the saints and the faithful brethren. To the saints and faithful brethren. Now this could refer to two different groups. One group called the saints, one group called the faithful brethren. Some commentaries say that. He's writing in two groups. The saints are the Jews. The faithful brethren are the Gentiles. Well, that sounds good, but that doesn't really make sense. Because the word there is saints in our English Bible is actually an adjective. And you know what an adjective does? What does an adjective do? Modifies a noun. And the word simply means holy. So it's to the holy, that's one adjective. There's a second adjective in verse 2, and that's the word faithful. You see that? Two adjectives. And there's only one noun, and the noun is what? Brethren. brethren. He's writing to the brethren. The holy and the faithful brethren. Those who are set apart, who have given their lives to Christ, and are faithful in that allegiance to Christ. That's to whom he's writing. Now we come to the where question. Okay? The where question. Look at their location. First of all, look at their spiritual location in verse 2. To the faithful brethren, spiritual location, in Christ. They're located in Christ. That is what happens when you're baptized. You're baptized into Christ. It means you've been born again. And that's their spiritual location. These are located in Christ, look at their geographical location, who are in Colossae. So we have two locations, a physical location and a spiritual location. Now where is Colossae? Well, if we had, I wish that every New Testament book would have a map right in the front connected to that book rather than in the back. But just let me tell you where Colossae is. It's part of Asia Minor. It's a city in Asia Minor. Which today is Western Turkey. In the book of Revelation, John writes to the seven churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor. Remember when he does that? Smyrna, Pergamos, Laodicea. Remember that? 
Those are happen to be seven cities in Asia Minor or Western Turkey. Colossae is another city that's located in that same region. It's 11 miles south from Laodicea, that church that was lukewarm. Remember that church? It's 100 miles east of Ephesus. Remember that church? The church that lost its first love? So it's right in that region, 100 miles east of Ephesus, and it's part of a highway, a trade route, that would go from east to west across Asia Minor. One thing we know about this region is that in 63 AD a major earthquake hit this area and Colossae was wiped off the map. When you think of the worst earthquakes we've had today and how it's just rubble, that's what happened. And it laid in ruins. And finally, just as from weather and the elements, uh, you couldn't even see the ruins anymore. The ruins of Colossae were unknown until 1835. When a little item, which was part of a temple in Colossae, appeared out of the ground on a high mount. And Colossae was rediscovered. It's never been excavated. The Turkish government will not allow anyone to go in there. Well, I shouldn't say that. They welcome any archaeologist to go in and excavate the region, the, the city, but they want a $50,000 fee up front for you to do that for a week. And so it's, it's been lying in ruins, and no one has ever excavated it. And you say, well, why is that? It's because Colossae, Colossae was not a major city. It was not an important city. It was known for its dye, but I mean, that, and it had, you know, had about 50,000 Jews that had moved down from Babylon in, in the 4th century B.C. And, and a couple hundred thousand Gentiles, but it was not a major city by any means. So this is where it's written to, this secondary city, probably the least important city uh, that Paul writes to in all of his letters. Okay? Now because the earthquake... Uh, leveled Colossae in 63, guess what that means? This answers the wind question. <laughs> it tells us that Paul had to write the letter to those people before 63 AD, and he wrote it while he was in jail, and there was only one time he was in jail before 63 AD, and that was in 61 and 62 when he was under house arrest in Rome. So we know from where the letter was written, and to whom the letter was written, and the when question is answered. And so that's very interesting. Now, one thing about this church at Colossae is that Paul did not found it. This is one of the churches that he did not plant. What we think is that when Paul was over in Ephesus, remember he spent three years in Ephesus planting the church, major city. Most likely one of his associates went over into Colossae and like Laodicea and Hariopolis and all those other little cities in the Asia Minor region and planted this church, did evangelism and planted the church. Um, this becomes apparent when you begin to read the passage. Look at verse 3 there. He says, We give thanks to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now watch this. Since we heard of your faith, in Christ Jesus. See, it sounds like a second-hand report. 
we heard that you have become believers, that you have faith in Christ. See, it sounds like a second-hand report. If you look at the end of verse 5, you see that phrase, the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, in verse 6, as it has in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew of the grace of God in truth, as you've heard from Epaphras. You see that? Look where they got it from. They got it from a guy named Epaphras. He was the one who went there and preached the gospel. Our dear fellow servant who is faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And also declared to us, this guy Epaphras declared to us your love in the spirit. So Paul is getting all this information secondhand. He did not plant this church. This guy named Epaphras planted the church. Now there's another evidence that this was planted, this church was planted by someone else. And that's found in chapter 2. Now look over at chapter 2 and verse 1. This is interesting. Look what Paul says. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen what? My face. These are people that have never met Paul. See? He does not has not met these personally, have not seen my face in the flesh. And look over at chapter four. We see another emphasis here. And look at verse twelve. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Heropolis. So it looks like that Paul did not plant this church. Okay. Now, where does this church meet? Well, if you stay in chapter 4, you discover where the church meets. Look what it says in verse 17. I want you to walk, look at this name Paul says to the Colossians, I want you to say something to somebody. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you build on it. So here we see this guy named Archippus is part of this church at Colossae. And if you look back at verse 7 of chapter 4, look what it says. This is going to tell us who delivers the letter to that church. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. So this is the guy that's going to deliver the letter, a guy named Tychicus. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. And then look at verse 9. You see another name. And... What? Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things that are happening here. So now we see these names. We see who are going to deliver the letter, a guy named Tychicus, a guy named Onesimus. He mentions a guy named Archippus. And where do you see those kinds of names? You see those in the book of Philemon. So you're... At the end of Colossians, your next book is Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Just start turning through there. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. 
and then Titus as the five key books, and then look at Philemon. Now watch this. Our question is a where question. Where is the church located? Where does it meet? Well, we know it's located in Colossae, but where does it meet? Now look at this. Philemon chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ. There you are. He's the prisoner of this one. And Timothy, our brother, same other guy. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, and to beloved Aphia, that's his wife, and Archippus. See, we just saw that. Fellow soldier. And to the church that meets where? In your house. Down in verse 10, he mentions Onesimus. Do you see that? Onesimus is mentioned. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. And then, in verse 23, he mentions Epaphras, my fellow prisoner of Jesus. So the church that he's writing to meets in the house of a man named Philemon and his wife Aphia. Which tells us that this is not a great church of a thousand people, or even a hundred people. There are probably less than 20 people in this church. And they meet every week around the meal table. They have a meal that lasts two or three hours. And this letter is going to be read when the church gathers around the meal table. It's like you're gathered around the table. If we had a breakfast, and we all eat breakfast, and we call it the Lord's Supper, we were doing it in the name of the Lord, and then I got up and spoke, and I would be reading this letter of Colossians to you, it would be similar to what was happening in the first century church. And so this letter will be read out loud to the church, <coughs> meeting in Philemon's house. And Archippus is one of the ministers in that local church. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so let's go back to Colossians. And uh, let's look up, let's discover who makes up this church. What is the ethnic makeup of the church? So go back to Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to show you who these faithful and holy brethren are. Colossians chapter 1, and look down at verse 21. Colossians 1, 21. <coughs> And he says this, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he is now reconciled. Same phrase that's used over in Ephesians, and it refers to Gentiles, who were once alienated and strangers to the people of God. He's describing Gentiles here. We see that down in verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Look at this. He willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the who? Gentiles. You see that in verse 27? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So notice he's talking about Gentiles. Then in verse 13 of chapter 2, look what he said. And you being dead in your trespasses, and then look at this next phrase. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Well, who was uncircumcised? Gentiles were uncircumcised. This letter is written to Gentiles. Gentile believers. In Christ. In Colossae. Yet, they are being influenced 
and they're being pressured by Jews who were saying, if you really want to be the people of God, you need to start keeping the Jewish laws. You need to keep uh, the, the laws of Moses. You need to be circumcised. And so all this pressure is being put on the Gentiles to become Jews. And that's why the book's written. It's written because Judaizers are pressuring these Gentiles who have found grace through Christ to come under the law of Moses and be, sac- and be circumcised. In fact, in chapter 2, again, if you just look at verse 16, look what he says to these Gentiles. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. And that's talking about Judaism. He says, which are a shadow of things to come. These were Old Testament shadows pointing to someone. But the substance is of Christ. So this is why he's writing, to keep these people living according to grace, not falling into the old ways of Judaism, and, and abandon grace. Now, when we say, what is the book about? What is the theme of the book? Well, we can find the theme very easily. And uh, let me show you the theme back in chapter 1 and verse 18. This is what we consider the theme, or the key verse in all the books. So, he says this, talking about Christ. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Now, why is, why is he all those things? That in all things, he may have the preeminence. That's what this book is about, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Keep him first. Law of Moses, it's great law. Jesus is preeminent. Very similar to the book of Hebrews. Christ is superior to the law. Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to Joshua. Christ is superior to the Sabbath. Christ is superior to angels. Christ is preeminent over all. And that's what Paul wants these people to understand. Keep their focus on Jesus. Now, notice a couple things in chapter 1. First of all, I want you to notice he's preeminent in his incarnation. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. He is preeminent, actually he's preeminent in his pre-incarnation, even before he came to earth. Look at that. Preeminent in his pre-incarnation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For by him all things were what? Created. See, he was preeminent in his pre-incarnation. He was the creator. That in heaven and that on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, he was preeminent over angels, over everything that exists. He was the creator God. He was preeminent in his incarnation. You see that in verse 19 of chapter 1. Now he's taken on flesh, and look what it said. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. God, God lived in Christ in a full way. And by him, all, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through what? The blood of the cross. He had to become a man and shed his blood. So he was preeminent in his incarnation, and it was through his death on the cross that all things become reconciled to God. And then he's preeminent in the indwelling of the believer. Look down at verse 27. 
To them God willed to be made known what are the riches of his glory and the mystery in gen- uh, among the Gentiles. Now watch this. And here is the great rich. This is the great riches that we have as Gentiles in Christ Jesus. And here it is. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. The hope of glory. He's preeminent in his indwelling. And it's his indwelling presence that changes our lives. Over in verse 10 it says this. And you are complete in him. You see that? You are complete in him. Who is head of all principalities and powers. Notice that right now, each believer who's indwelt by Christ is complete in him. What's beyond complete? Nothing is beyond complete. He's preeminent in his indwelling of believers. Does that make sense? So there's nothing beyond complete. Now, go back to chapter 1. Let's just finish reading this second verse because this is the introduction. Look what he says. So here it goes. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, or the holy and faithful brethren, in Christ, who are in Colossae. And here's the introduction. Grace to you. And that means God's benefits. Benefits. Grace to you. And peace. From Jupiter, the head God of Rome, the Father God of Rome, and Lord Caesar. Is that what it said? See, Rome believed that all benefits flowed down from Jupiter, the Father of all gods, and came down through Caesar, who was Lord over the empire. And so, that's what grace is. Grace is the benefits that flow down. And peace is the security that Caesar promised. Caesar promised peace and security to anyone who just gave their allegiance to the empire and said, Caesar is Lord. You were guaranteed peace and security. He would have his armies protect you. Paul says, hey, don't get your focus on the government. Don't trust them to take care of all your needs. Uh, that was the first century, it was his first century message. He says, rather, guess what you're to do? Look to God the Father, and from Him all the benefits will flow. And He is the one that gives you peace and security. And we need to find our peace and security and the source of all peace and security, and that's God, our Father. So my prayer is that God will grant us the same grace and peace as we study the book of Colossians that Paul encourage the Colossians to experience for themselves. Amen? Next week we'll pick up at verse 3 and we'll start verse by verse exposition in the book of Colossians. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are on a new journey. We can transpose ourselves in our minds and we will get a sense of what it's like to, to hear Paul's letter written. We'll get a sense of what it was like to live under the harsh reality of the Roman government and get a sense of what it was like to be pressured into conforming to an old form of religion, of Judaism. And then, Lord, you'll speak to us through these words and show us how this applies to our lives. Help us to take with us this Sunday 
that Jesus Christ is preeminent in all ways. Help us, Lord, to find our security in you. Christ's name. Thank you. I think you want me to find